Welcome back to another episode of The Jacob Johnson Show. So on yesterday's bonus episode, I had teased up that today's episode was going to be something special, something that I've been working on for a little bit of time. And I had planned to have that produced and ready to release today. However, I must admit, I did not get it done. I, I wasn't able to complete it. And there was two issues that I'm facing. One, with all the information, with all the content that I could be providing, this could, if I'm not careful, turn into a full-length documentary-like episode. And that is not my goal or my intent. So I'm having to go through and cut down on the content and try and figure out what content is more important than the other. Now, I guess I could go off and do some fundraising, some crowdfunding, in order to be able to turn this into a full-length documentary. That is one option. And so I thought, okay, yes, over the weekend, I would be able to get the content cut down, filtered down, and have it ready for recording and production in a podcast format for today. My kids, on the other hand, had a different plan for how the weekend would go, more specifically, my four-year-old. And if you have a four-year-old, you understand that there are times when they pretty much ignore your existence. But then there are other times where they need your complete 24-7 undivided attention, play, play, play all day long, and will get angry, throw temper tantrums if you try to do anything else. And so after I had gotten yesterday's episode produced, my four-year-old decided he wanted my complete undivided attention. And I thought because he got that on Saturday, that Sunday I would be free to be able to work. But that wasn't the case. So I'm sorry I teased it all up. I have most of it ready, but I wasn't able to get it completed in time in order to produce it for today's episode. So that's on me. That's on me. I am sorry about that. And so what I will do going forward here is I just won't let you know in advance what I'm up to or that I plan on doing anything special, or at least I'm not going to announce the date of when that's going to be until I confirm that I have everything cut and ready to go. Now, with that said, I still have an episode today. I still have things uh, that I want to go through and talk about, you know, several, well, it's the usual uh, stuff that is going on in the news where the Democrats are acting insane. They're promoting the same stupidity that they always promote. And then I want to go through some of the disasters that Biden is trying to go through and set up for the future. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and start getting into today's episode. So Biden and his cronies are out there right now, once again, proving that there is no failed policy, no complete disaster that they won't rehash and bring back. You know, the Democrats go out there and they try to claim that they're intellectual and they'll say, hey, I got all these credentials and I got all these awards for my achievements, except for the awards are not based off of actually achieving anything. It's coming from left-wing groups and organizations that don't really have the prestige except for the pretense that the left gives them as claiming that they're prestigious. And they go out there and these awards are not based off of actual achievement, but rather adherence to left-wing ideology. But they try to use that in order to bolster their credibility and claim that they are the experts. And anybody who disagrees with them has no idea what they're talking about. And yet, Time and time again, the left engages, re-engages, and rehashes the same failed policies over and over and over again. You know, there is a word for a person who does the same thing repeatedly and expects a different result. Insane. 
And nobody can argue, at least not rationally, not logically or intelligently, when looking at the Democrats, nobody can argue that they are anything but insane. They are delusional. And this is coming as they bring back the idea that they're going to have a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict or problems in the Middle East. You know, John Kerry had gone out there and proclaimed years ago that there is no path to peace in the Middle East without going through Palestine. And yet Trump proved him wrong. When Trump got into office, he's like, you know, instead of doing the same failed policies over and over again, let's try something different. Let's go ahead and cut off the funding to terrorist groups and organizations, and let's start negotiating with other members of the Middle East. And what did we get? We had uh, the Abraham Accords, and we had the most peaceful, stable time in the Middle East that we have seen in decades under President Trump. Now that President Trump's out, Biden being installed into the White House immediately changed course back to the same failed policy and started and restored funding to the terrorists in the Middle East. And surprise, surprise, they attack now that they have the money to attack again. But let's actually take a few moments here to talk about the two-state solution. This is something that has been proposed many times for many decades, many decades already. I mean, we're talking about 60, 70 years of the two-state solution path that the Democrats have been pursuing and claiming is the only thing that's going to work. But here's what they always fail to leave out of the media report, what they always fail to inform the public as they try to push the idea that a two-state solution is the solution. And that is the Palestinians have already rejected the two-state solution, not once, not twice, but five times. Five times the Palestinians have been offered their own country, the two-state solution. And each time they have been given more and more land in that deal. And the Palestinians have rejected it five times. Now, anybody who thinks Israel is going to give up more than 50% of their country, given how small of a country they already are, is insane and delusional and is not working towards actual peace, but is working towards the same goal as the Palestinians. Because the Palestinians are not interested in a two-state solution. They're interested in a one-state solution. And that one state involves the complete and total elimination of Israel. Anything short of the elimination of, the, of Israel is unacceptable to the Palestinian leaders, the Palestinian authority. And that is why they have rejected the two-state solution five different times when they were offered their own country. And the, they don't even negotiate. They're not even willing to come to the negotiation table. I mean, when you go through and you take a look at past attempts, what happens? Well, they'll come to the United States for, you know, supposed talk, only because they want the prestige that they can run uh, propaganda back in Palestinian territory, you know, or actually Israel territory that the Palestinians are occupying. They want the prestige of having met with the American president, you know, and the, you know, authority and the credibility that that gives them. But they have no interest in the actual negotiation because how the negotiations usually go is the United States and Israel offers them a two-state solution, offers them their own country, and they just say no. And then they say no. They don't offer any counteroffer, right? And then they try to let the 
you know, United States and Israel negotiate with themselves while Palestine just flatly says, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. No, no, no. Because they don't want a two-state solution. Their one and only objective is the elimination of, of Israel to finish what Hitler started so long ago. And yet, the buffoons that occupy the Democrat Party can't seem to grasp this. They can't seem to understand. They're the intellectuals. They can't accept the fact that their policy failed. Now, it should be no surprise to them because so many of their policies fail in complete and total disaster. But they are unable to recognize that their policies fail. They're unable to accept that. So they double down on it. They triple down on it. They quadruple down on it. And no amount of facts, data, evidence, or just blatantly people telling them what you know the situation is in the negotiation can ever penetrate that 50-inch thick skull of theirs. Why? Well, that's going to be something that I am going to discuss on the project that I'm working on about how they have been, well, I'll tease up a little bit, but as far as why it is they are insane, why it is that they are so indoctrinated, so propagandized, so I will even use the word brainwash, that no amount of facts, data, and scientific evidence will ever penetrate or be able to convince them that a spade is a spade. And this is why they continue to engage in the same failed policies over and over and over again, and yet somehow expecting a different result. But the left keeps on pushing it, and they claim they are experts. They are experts on the Middle East. They're experts on foreign policy. But shouldn't an expert be based on having actually achieved something? Shouldn't an expert actually be based on success rather than failure? I mean, when you take a look at the left's experts on any field, whether it's their experts in the scientific community, experts in the foreign policy arena, or experts in whatever it is they claim to be experts in, shouldn't the expert at least be right once before you call them an expert? Only in left-wing politics can someone be wrong 100% of the time and be called an expert. I mean, heck, take a look at, well, let me just, well, you know what? Let me put it to you this way. A broken clock is right more often than a left-wing expert. At least a broken clock is right twice a day. So by that standard, a broken clock has more right to being called an expert than anybody that the left and the Democrats put forward on anything. And unlike the left, I would prefer my experts to be right at least once before I start actually listening to what it is they have to say. And we can talk about this around everything, but it doesn't matter to them. Their experts can be wrong 100% of the time, but they'll still prop them up as experts. Not because they're actually experts, but because of the psychological manipulation. This is why the left creates so many organizations that give out so many different type of so-called prestigious awards because they're trying to build up a sense of credibility around a group of people who have zero credibility. And then they can use that for psychological manipulation where they go off and they appeal to the expert. They appeal and quote the so-called experts. Now, they're the ones handpicking the experts, and they're only experts because the Democrats say they are, not because they actually achieved anything or were, have ever been right on anything. But they are so intent on trying to create the illusion of expertise 
so that when they come out and they just mindlessly agree to promote the Democrats' narrative because doing so and going along with the sham involves their 15 minutes of fame all over TV and a lot of money being thrown their way so that the Democrats can go off and appeal to them to manipulate you into going, yeah, well, these people, I mean, this is their career. This, this is you know their expertise. This is what they know most about. Therefore, if they're saying it, well, then it must be true. No, let's stop falling for this scam, all right? Let's actually demand that the so-called experts be right at least once before we start giving them any type of credibility on anything. If your expert has less accuracy than a broken clock, then, then you should get different experts. But one thing Democrat politicians understand is that it doesn't matter how disastrous their policies are, how often they fail. It doesn't matter that their experts are proven wrong 100% of the time because they have the media on their side. The media, who is not there to inform you or provide objective facts, who are not there for a well-informed society to know exactly what's going on, they are there to gaslight you in promoting whatever narrative the DNC wants them to promote. They are the useful idiots that makes all other idiots more useful to the left. They're the ones who go out there and pump somebody up as an expert, regardless of how often they've been wrong. They're the ones who go out there and try to control the narrative and to try and blame Republicans for every disastrous policy of the Democrats and to try and claim credit for the Democrats for the successful policies of the Republicans. And throughout the history of the United States, what's kind of interesting is that foreign countries that are authoritarian in nature, whenever they want to push propaganda, they always go to the leftist media because they know they are useful idiots. They stroke their ego, put on a show for them, or they go off and make sure that how they report something will directly impact the journalist financially. And throughout this, they've been able to get so-called journalists to push whatever propaganda narrative that authoritarian nations want them to push. It's also part of the reason why, back in the 1940s or 1930s, that the left-wing media you know, was downplaying what Hitler was doing over in Germany and trying to downplay you know, the atrocities being committed and claiming Hitler is not that bad of a person. In fact, Time Magazine gave Hitler Person of the Year Award back in the day. It's also the very people that Russian disinformation specialists, Russian propaganda specialists, why they targeted left-wing journalists. They even labeled them useful idiots. You know, that if you just stroke their ego and tie financial success to favorable coverage, you know, or money to favorable coverage, they will push whatever Soviet Union propaganda that the Soviet Union wanted the left-wing journalists to push. But at least they had uh, some intelligence, at least to the point that they wouldn't say the quiet part out loud. And that's what's happening more and more. As they have become more full of themselves, more egotistical in the media, believing that they are the elitists in society, that they dictate what is and isn't true, that they can't help themselves but to brag about how smart they think they are and admitting that they are just BSing you and that they are nothing more than opinion political hats. 
And so Don Lemon was out there and he, well, said the quiet part out loud. So from the right scoop, CNN's brand of journalism is to find things that Republicans say, make a huge deal out of it, and or find people bashing Republicans and make them heroes no matter how questionable their characters. Find bad people doing bad things and attribute their motives to Republicans and to never correct when they are wrong, and then repeat the process over and over again. But normally, they don't say that out loud. They don't normally say that their job in journalism is explicitly to support Democrats and oppose Republicans. However, that's exactly what happened with Don Lennon. Lemon, ah, sorry, that tongue-tie getting in uh, the way there, who told his friends, who are as much journalists as he is, which is to say they're not, the only party now that is operating in reality is the Democrat Party, and that the Republican Party is obsolete, and that Americans who care about equity should ditch the Republican Party. Before assuring his CNN cohorts that his fellow travelers of an audience, that he is not a political person. Not a political person. You're a complete and total political hack. You don't even meet the definition of a journalist. I'm a person who lives in reality. I'm a journalist, he said, explaining why he supports Democrats, because he's a journalist. And naturally, he used but racism as the starting point for his justification. Okay, so he, he's going off there trying to claim that this delusional fantasy that he lives in is reality and that the Democrats are the only party of equity despite the history of the Democrat Party showing them as authoritarian, murderous thugs, intolerant and violent, but they're the only party of, of equality and the only ones living in reality. Now, 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 it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, this is really funny coming from Don Lemon and CNN. Now, uh, this, again, you know, I'm, I'm going to be putting, uh, you know, together, I'm going to cut it down to a podcast format rather than going all overboard, at least for the audio version, the video version will probably look a lot different, uh, being able to really expose what is going on here. But the basics of saying that, you know, you can't be a journalist if you're not a Democrat really goes off to show that there are no journalists in left-wing media. They are political hack. And notice that statement that he was making, the only ones living in reality. You know, that statement right there was taken from the Democrats' talking points, taken straight from the DNC after, I don't remember what representative it was, but after a Democrat representative took to the House floor and declared that there was only one party living in reality and the Republicans are not it, as he was trying to chastise Republicans for not supporting the January 6th commission, which we all know is not about January 6th, but about giving the Democrats all the power and authority of the government to use it as opposition research against their political opponents to influence the 2022 midterms and to be able to shut down any ability of Republicans to be able to operate in the 2022 midterms by going after their donors, going after um, any of their supporters, and going after any influencers as well as the candidates themselves. But they took that statement, Don Lemon, straight from the DNC talking points. You ever notice how so much of the left-wing media, so much of 
the talking points that they repeat over and over and over again is issued by the DNC. And yet they claim to be journalists. They're not journalists. They're lapdogs. They're pawns. They're useful idiots. They're just the marketing wing of the DNC. They have zero credibility whatsoever. But what's most laughable about this is that the fact that it is coming from CNN. CNN. CNN, who has promoted every baseless conspiracy theory pushed by the Democrat Party. The whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax, to name one. You know, so they promote every baseless conspiracy theory that you can think of, and they have been wrong 100% of the time. CNN, who has been caught by Project Veritas multiple times, admitting, laughing, and bragging about how they lie, they gaslight, and in their and in the words of CNN's own producers, produce and push propaganda, specifically to help Democrats. I mean, so they already admit that they lie, they propagandize, they gaslight. And then they still have the audacity after being exposed and caught on video to still claim that they are journalists. See, reality doesn't matter to the left. And this is coming from CNN. CNN, who is so far removed from reality, they can't even tell the difference anymore between a man and a woman. And no amount of evidence, no amount of scientific fact, no amount of data will be able to convince them that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Nothing can penetrate that thick skull of theirs. But of course, maybe I should feel sorry for Don Lemon, because maybe it's not his fault that he is incapable of rational, logical thinking, that he's incapable of being able to process and analyze data, information, and fact, that he has been isolated so far and removed so far from reality that maybe it's not his fault. Maybe he's just the victim, a victim of cultural subversion. Now, you may take that statement and go, cultural subversion? What's that? Many of you may not have heard of what cultural subversion is. And some of you may suddenly pause this in order to look it up. But cultural subversion was developed by Marxists and Leninists, but more so by Marxists. And we'll get to that more in another episode. Now, beyond the corruption of the media and beyond the Democrats and this fraudulent administration bringing back all the failed policies and dumpster fires of the past. There are a lot of things that are going on that should scare the hell out of everybody. How they are going for broke in a major power grab so that they can solidify their power permanently to take away democracy and the Constitution and replace it with an all-powerful centralized government. And one of the things that they are doing in order to be able to justify their major power grab is they're going back to climate change, the global climate crisis. See, coronavirus was useful temporarily. It gave them a break. And if you ever took a look at the rules for radicals, it says, don't do something for too long. It can drag you down. So you go through and you find several things and you switch back and forth between them. Now, the left isn't really all that smart. So they don't know how to cycle through everything properly. So when the coronavirus hit, it just provided them an opportunity to give people a little bit of a break from trying to convince everybody that the world is going to end. Now, let's first point out that the Democrats, the left, have been wrong on climate change 100% of the time for 120 years now. 
they have gone back and forth with the scientific community says there's going to be an ice age in 10 years to, oh, no, 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 no. Did we say ice age? No, we, we meant global warming. Oh, did we say global warming? No, we were right the first time. It's uh, the coming ice age. And it's always 10-year periods, 15-year periods. At least in the 90s, they gave us a little bit of a break and switched it up and said acid rain. But they keep going back and forth uh, between this. And now, instead of giving us 10 and 15-year policies, because people will go, well, that's what you said the last time and the time before that and the time before that, they have switched it up to 100-year projections. That way, nobody alive today will be around to see yet another one of their climate claims fail and debunked. And they keep using these models that are wrong 100% of the time to also try and estimate or guess what they think the climate was. And then and they're comparing today's climate not to what the actual climate was because the data doesn't exist from, you know, what is it, even 200 years ago. The data just doesn't exist. They're making it up. They're, they build these models filled with a lot of assumptions, none of which have ever been proven right. And then they're using that to project what they claim the, the climate has been historically and then trying to project uh, what it is in the future and going, hey, you know, the climate is changing rapidly. It's changing fast. If we don't do something now, it's going to be disaster. It's going to be the apocalypse. Amazing how many apocalypses the Democrats have declared that we have already survived. Now, maybe if they got it right one, one time, you know, they might have some credibility in pushing this, but they have been wrong 100% of the time. But again, the truth, facts, data, doesn't matter to the left. They know that if they push something long enough, often enough, that people will start to begin to accept it as truth. And you can already see that happening, not just from the left, but you can already see People on the right conceding that, okay, maybe uh, climate change uh, is man-made, or at least to some extent man-made. They're already conceding the argument, and yet haven't been provided any actual proof or evidence. No, all they have is speculation and theory designed to fit their narrative. Why? Because they need to create the impression of a crisis. You know, the Democrats' old saying, never let a crisis go to waste. So they need to create the perception of a crisis, a perception of absolute urgency. It's so urgent and so, you know, large scale crisis that you must immediately give the government all the authority in order to tackle this issue, or it's an extinction level event. And they keep pushing that because irrational fear will overthrow logic every single time. So it's not just constant propaganda and gaslighting. It is the fear mongering that goes through this. And they are using that in order to justify Joe Biden's latest executive order, which is basically a complete takeover of the economy and your bank account. This is horrifying. Now, there is a fact sheet that is out there. I got it off of uh, Politico's website. So, you know, uh, Politico is not exactly a right-leaning organization. Now, you can get access to the entire uh, executive order and read through it. Um, it will take you a while to read through it. And they tried to fill it up with a bunch of meaningless jargon, hoping to lose you through the weeds, you know, lose the forest through the weeds or lose the forest through the trees, you know, but let's go ahead and take a look at some of the things that they're going off. Now, the first point here on this five point fact sheet is just kind of meaningless, kind of just jargon, just fluffy sounding statements. 
but it's the develop a whole of government approach to mitigating climate-related risk. Now, while this itself is not anything of substance, it does set up everything else that comes after it, though, where the real danger and real, the real authoritarian nature of the government comes into place. And of course, they're going to claim that it's altruistic, that they are trying to save the world. I mean, do you want the world to end? Why would you oppose this? Are you looking for the extinction of the human race? I mean, that's the argument. And yet they're not able to ever produce any evidence of their claims and their theories that they have pushed out there wrong 100% of the time. Okay, so they go off and they set this up. So under the guise of climate emergency and climate financial risk, see, they're switching it up, not just uh, as an emergency and uh, extinction level event, but now they're trying to put it in terms of financial risk. Why? Because if they can make it a financial risk as well, then they can justify regulations. They can justify taking over industries through regulations. I mean, this is one of the things that happens in authoritarian countries. The authoritarians want to push out rules to control the economy, but the their policies often fail and they do not want to take the responsibility for it. So they set up this crony capitalist system, this fake system of business owners, and they allow the businesses to be left in the name of private owners. But the government is dictating every last aspect of how that business is to run and operate to that person. And then when it fails, what happens? The government steps in and goes, well, it wasn't us. They're the ones running the company. Now, publicly, that is the perception. Privately, through regulations and government uh, control, they, it's the government running these businesses and running them into the ground because they're not basing any of their business decisions on facts. And so they're trying to set up the same thing here in the United States, whereby the government takes over private businesses, allows them to stay at least on paper in the ownership, the private ownership. But the government plans and the Democrat plan on taking them over through regulations. And then when things go to hell, they have their scapegoat. Right, and now they're trying to do this through climate-related financial risk. Ooh. So we get to the uh, second part here. And it goes, encourage financial regulators to assess climate-related financial risk. So they're already immediately jumping into the regulators. Hey, if, something, if anybody's engaged in any type of business activity that you know, has an impact on climate, then they are creating risk. And we must mitigate that risk for... You know, and this is the re reason why they have to convince you it's an emergency because the Constitution, you know, they have to, there's a clause in there about, you know, about the best interest or, you know, such. I'll have to look up the exact wording. I should have had that uh, prepared right now. But there is a clause in there that they have abused repeatedly in order to expand the power and control of government. So if they can convince you that climate is an existential threat, climate change, and also a financial risk to the country, then they can justify, or at least pretend to justify, through the Constitution, violating the Constitution and expanding the power and control of government. All right. So encourage the financial regulators to assess climate-related financial risk. The executive order encourages the Treasury Secretary in her role. You know, th they said in her role. Did they double check to see what the preferred pronoun was? I mean, how do they know it's a she? 
I'm just joking here. But in any event, in her role as the chair of the Financial Stability Oversight Council to work with council members to assess climate-related financial risk to the stability of the federal government and the stability of the U.S. financial system. Yes, the regulations are coming to the banks and the financial institutions over climate. All right. Additionally, in her role as the chair, she should work with members of agencies to consider issuing a report within 180 days on action the council recommends to reduce risk to financial stability, including plans that member agencies are taking to improve climate-related disclosures and other source of data. All right. Now, the second bullet point here, bolster the resilience of life savings and pensions. Oh, yes, they're taking this not only to control the financial institutions, but to also control your investment accounts and your savings accounts. So here's how this goes. The executive order directs the labor secretary to consider suspending, revising, or rescinding any rules from the prior administration that would have barred investment firms from considering environmental, social, and governance factors, including climate-related risks in their investment decisions related to workers' pensions. The order also asks the department to report on other measures that can be implemented to protect the life savings and pensions of U.S. workers and families from climate-related financial risk. All right, next one. Monetize federal lending, underwriting, and procurement. The executive order directs the development and recommendations for improving how federal financial management and reporting can incorporate climate-related financial risk, especially, okay, especially as that risk relates to federal lending programs. It also requires considering a new requirement for major federal suppliers to disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risks to ensure that major federal agency procurements minimize those risks. Mm-hmm. Reduce the risk of climate change to the federal budget. The executive order ensures that the federal government is taking steps to be fiscally responsible. <laughs> oh, the government, fiscally responsible. Now that is funny. The government doesn't even know what the definition of fiscal responsibility is. All right. Anyways, I continue. In response to the significant risk that unmitigated climate change poses to the federal budget through increased cost and lost revenues. Okay, so let's go through and talk about what this order really is. It is the government takeover of private industry and your bank account, but it's also using the power of government to target political and ideological opponents. Now, some of you may be going, huh? What do you mean? Well, let's take a look at this. You know, the monetized federal lending, underwriting, and procurement. Basically, they're setting it up to ensure that only left-wing organizations get government contracts. Only those that push left-wing narrative and ideology will get government contracts, and therefore, they can ensure to be able to bolster and finance these government, uh, you know, through government procurements, you know, uh, finance uh, their friends, family, and donors who will kick back money to the Democrat Party. But it's also in setting up federal loan programs, you know, for, you know, uh, students and, you know, to ensure that the money goes only towards left-wing colleges, which at this point, I guess, is almost about every public college institution and underwriting 
So basically, they're just trying to set it up uh, where they can give their friends, family, and donors money and give them more preferable treatment and government contracts over competition. All right, but where it really gets you know scary here is in that first two, the financial regulators and the savings plan. So with the financial regulators, when they're trying to say disclose climate-related, um, you know, uh, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, that they have to consider their, uh, how exactly was it word, environmental, social, and governance factor, which is all code word and dog w- words for uh, them going through and saying, you must consider their political ideology and determining your how your financial institution operates, you know, and going through and saying, hey, you know, you must now uh, have companies, you know, as part of the lending and underwriting process, they must show that they adhere to leftism and provide you this, you know, uh, calculated bogus crap whereby they say that they are producing, you know, what their greenhouse emissions are and what their um, impact on the climate is and all of that. And which really is just a screening tool so that they can take over the financial institution to ensure that if you do not align with the left, you will be denied access to the banks and the levers of finance in order to finance the startup of your business, in order to finance you know, the continued operations of your business, so on and so forth. It's a way to ensure money goes towards left-wing businesses and organizations and to starve out right-wing businesses and organizations under government directives and going through, especially on the part of social and governance factor, you know, but it also goes through and wants to ensure the funding even more through investments. You know, so when you go through and you operate on investments, you go through, you research companies. If you like them, you invest in in that company through stocks, or maybe you go through mutual funds. Well, they are going through here and now they're trying to say, hey, you know what? We're going to tank any business that doesn't align ideologically with the left by blocking and cutting off financial institutions and investment firms from being able to set up portfolios or offer their stocks to the customer to be able to purchase through that broker because that stock is part of a company that poses an irresponsible financial you know, climate risk to the nation and to the world, you know, and then taking a look at your savings and pensions, forcing you, forcing you to have to invest. If you're a conservative and you have investments, you're not being allowed to freely invest in the companies you actually believe in. You're only now going to be allowed options that only the left wants you to invest in because it benefits the left. They're trying to reorganize America's financial system, financial institution, reorganize the entire market to use the levers of finance to starve out their ideological opponents and to ensure and direct finances towards their own base. And all of this is going to be brought through regulations without any approval or legislative passage by Congress, which, by the way, any regulations that come out that have any effect of law and in um, where it says you must an enforcement and a punishment mechanism by definition is unconstitutional if it hasn't been passed by Congress. Under no circumstances should any company 
agree or abide by an unconstitutional regulation. But of course, the Democrats are going to claim they have the authority to do so. You know, and part of that has been the constant abuse of executive orders to usurp the powers of Congress. Executive orders that have any appearance of law are unconstitutional, flat out unconstitutional, as stated in the Constitution, as the because all legislative authority is in Congress. Now, it doesn't matter what you call it, regulations. Now, regulations that are just, you know, um, operating procedures, you know, this is how you do this task, or this is the overall goal of the administration that we want you to work for, towards. Fine. You know, executive orders, you know, about their operating procedures and their operating philosophy. Okay. But once they start putting in the appearance of law and enforcement and punishment mechanism, it is by definition unconstitutional if it's not passed by Congress. And so they're going off and they're going to go through the regulators to first go after the financial institutions and force total uh, bowing down and compliance with left-wing ideology. And that way they can control the flow of money and to ensure that that money only goes towards the left, just like with what they're doing with the procurement, underwriting, and federal lending programs is that they're going to ensure that, and they're going to use climate as the excuse, but to ensure that the money goes towards their donors, friends, and family. You want federal money? All you have to do is now is come up uh, with a company that supports the climate agenda, right? Supports the climate agenda, donate a few dollars to the Democrats to start greasing the wheel in the name of the company, of course, and then apply for federal grants or federal contracts and such. And the Democrats will see, hey, this person, this company is clearly leftist. They're already donating to us. Let's help finance that company. They do it with the solar companies all, all the time. You know, there are a lot of companies out there, a lot of companies that the left claim are models of success, and they've never turned a profit. They are subsidized by the government. They are subsidized because they are left-wing businesses, not there to make a profit, but there to claim to be working towards the left wing's goal when and in reality, they're really only there to help the Democrats launder taxpayer money back into the campaign funds of the Democrat and the Democrats' reelection efforts. I mean, they do you know how many leftist organizations have never turned out a profit, have never had a single profitable year. And yet, and yet their founders are held up as successful business people. And they are making millions of dollars a year off these businesses that have never turned a profit. And the money that they are getting in large comes from, well, solar panel companies going through and getting subsidized by the federal government to push leftism uh, on left-wing climate change agenda. So it's using regulators to take over the financial institutions to be able to direct and control the flow of money and then being able to control your savings account and your decisions on investing by denying you the ability to invest in certain companies because they don't ideologically align with the left. It's a takeover. It's a takeover. I mean, they, they are trying to find ways because maybe they did learn their lesson from the revolution that they would not be able to fend off enacting us, you know, or causing a second revolution. 
So instead of going for you know a fight because they can go off and demonize anybody who stands up and rebels against their takeover of the government, and they can go off as long as they decide that they're not going to fight back, be able to try and demonize, chastise that, and say they're operating outside of the uh, constitutional confines, outside of democracy. And so they're going through and they're trying to take another route, especially now that they have seen the results of Black Lives Matter's uh, year-long engagement in domestic terrorism and saw the support uh, plummet. So violence, they understand, will not be able to maintain the propaganda and gaslighting that they have worked so hard to promote. So they're now taking a look at the nonviolent means of a hostile takeover to take over our financial institutions, our bank accounts, the entire flow of money in order to just bankrupt and financially starve out their political opponents while ensuring that their donors, their supporters are well-financed and financed by the taxpayers or forced financed by other American citizens being forced to spend their money in ways they disagree with out of a lack of alternatives. This is scary what they are doing. It should horrify and scare the bejesus out of everybody. They are going for a complete and total takeover. And I have alluded to this, but my next story goes on to this as well. But the New York Times finds that support for Black Lives Matter crashed since last summer. So after the whole George Floyd incident, and this is why they didn't care about the truth of George Floyd, who died of a drug overdose while being arrested. They didn't care about the truth about George Floyd. Black Lives Matter, along with the media, saw a narrative that they could use in order to benefit themselves. The media and the Democrat politicians saw a narrative that they could use for election politics, and the Black Lives Matter founder saw a narrative that she could use in order to enrich and profit herself. You know, And so after George Floyd died of a drug overdose, support for Black Lives Matter skyrocketed as they pushed this fraudulent narrative that George Floyd was killed by a police officer, you know, and systemic racism, you know, and then they use that to justify engaging in domestic terrorism for a year, going city to city, burning down communities, and ironically, communities of color. And, you know, the founder of Black Lives Matter had, had uh, let's see here, raised, what is it, about $90 million dollars and has pretty much pocketed almost all of that. And then the Black Lives Matter chapters through, uh, throughout, you know, left-wing cities and such, you know, while they are official Black Lives Matter chapters, they don't receive any money or financing from the Black Lives Matter organization, right? Because the Black Lives Matter organization just pockets the money for themselves, pays themselves, and goes out and buys multiple houses for themselves. They're not spending any of the money on the cause for which they claim to believe in. So they go out there and they start engaging in violence. And of course, the violence are financed out of the pockets of the Black Lives Matter uh, members or Black Lives Matter activists because the one who uh, is in control of all the money donated to Black Lives Matter doesn't actually share it with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, (laughs) there was a great statement that was made. See, Leftists aren't against uh, wealth. They're just against other people's. So when they get money, of course, they hoard it. They spend it lavishly on themselves, and they don't actually put it towards the cause that they claim they have raised the money for. 
So they engaged in all this violence. And what the New York Times has found out is that support for Black Lives Matter has plummeted. In fact, it's lower now than what it was before George Floyd died of a drug overdose. That support for Black Lives Matter is tanking fast, that they are less popular than what they were in even 2019 because of all that. Now, the New York Times can't figure out what's causing the decrease in popularity. They are baffled by this, you know? And so they try to come up with an idea. But but of course, throughout their entire report on uh, support plummeting for Black Lives Matter, they forget to mention the riot. They forget to mention all the violence and domestic terrorism. And instead, they go out there and they say, the New York Times is speculating to the reason why support has fallen. Some have wondered whether support for Black Lives Matter especially among white people, is genuine or merely virtue signaling, the author suggested. So yes, if you were one of those people that previously supported Black Lives Matter, but no longer support them, you were never really an ally. You were never really a reformed racist, or at least you know a, ra- a racist atoning for anything. No, 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 no. You were just virtue signaling. You were a fraud, a fake, a phony. You were just taking advantage of the Black Lives Matter movement and minorities in order to hide out among their ranks and try to benefit from their movement yourself. So that's it. It can't be the violence, the domestic terrorism, the Marxist ideology, or any of that. It's just because support for Black Lives Matter was just virtue signaling. And you know what? The problem that I have with that is that it's not entirely false, right? Some of the best lies that the left comes out with is those that are based in half-truth. And yes, there were a lot on the left who came out supporting Black Lives Matter, no matter how disgusting their behavior, no matter how violent they were, because they were virtue signaling. The left goes through and does a lot of virtue signaling in order to try and claim that they have some sort of moral high ground when they are the deprivation and the absence of morality. But they go off and they try to virtue signal in order to try and use that virtue signal as a shield against criticism and as a way to you know, get, um, prom- get themselves promoted. It's part of the reason why so many people out there, um, you know, celebrities whose careers were you know, kind of collapsing, they were becoming less and less relevant, all of a sudden come out and say, well, I'm transgendered or I'm gender non-binary and these are my preferred pronouns because... They're trying to get back their 15 minutes of fame. They're virtue signaling in order to try and regain relevance in the culture and try to get their audience back or try and gain and establish an audience and, uh, to begin with. Because virtue signaling is all you need. And your actions don't matter. It's only what you say that matters. So it's all you need in order to get the left coming to you in droves, propping you up and handing over money so long as they think that you can be an effective messenger of their movement. So, yes, in a lot of respects, there was a lot of virtue signaling by the left, which, if that is the case, they were just virtue signaling, then there is some hope that the left is not as crazy as what they appear to be. That while they'll promote any crazy dumb butt idea, when when they go into the voting booth, there's at least a percentage of them that will actually vote smartly for Republicans because they don't actually want to live in a society that believes in the crap that they are pushing. But they'll keep pushing it so long 
as they can financially benefit from it. But the answer is simple. Yes, it was virtue signaling for many, and for many more, it was because the people tend to have a negative view of those who loot their business, attack them, and burn down their communities. What is so hard to understand about that? Now, before I end today's episode, there is one more story I want to get to, and it's one from the Epic Times entitled DeSantis on Critical Race Theory, Offensive to Expect Taxpayers to Pay to Teach Kids to Hate Their Own Country. And this goes into what I'll be talking about when I get everything done. Hopefully, I'll get everything uh, ready, produced, and uh, recorded for tomorrow, but no later than Wednesday, about the cultural subversion and what that is and how long ago it was initially implemented and when we were first warned about it and politicians ignored it. But this article goes off and helps to explain how effective cultural subversion has been over the past couple of decades. You know, so the article goes on and says uh, the, that um, critical race theory is based off false history and teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other. You know, the foundation against intolerance and racism, fair, fair. You notice the left always gives themselves these titles, you know, to claim that they're anti-racist, anti-fascist, that they're against intolerance. And yet these groups, organizations, and the left by, by and large are racist, intolerant, fascist, but they just hide behind their names. You know, it's more important what you call them than what they actually do. But anyways, fair describes critical race theory as pushing the idea that disparate outcomes such as academic competency scores can be reduced to a single variable, race. Um, no, it's not. I know there's plenty of people in every single race that have been successful, are millionaires, are political leaders. You know, and so race is not the factor. The factor here, in reality, if you are to be actually honest instead of a complete propagandist, is that the outcomes is based off of individual choice and action. What did you do? You know, how and how did you do it? Did you apply yourself, learn a skill, learn about something? Did you go out and apply that knowledge and skill to be productive in society, you know, and getting the jobs? Or did you start your own business? When you got into a job, did you just coast by doing the bare minimum effort? Or did you hustle? Did you work your butt off and prove your value to the company in order to raise up? I know the, you know, with, um, in my previous careers, I had worked and I had hustled to the point where I was getting promotions almost on a yearly basis. You know, almost when you take a look at the number of positions that I held within a company and how long I'd been there and I was receiving raises. Why? Because I was constantly looking for ways to go above and beyond and add value to show that I could be doing more than what I was. And I didn't wait. I didn't wait for for someone to pick me as if it's a lottery and ask me and assign me extra projects. I did it on my own. I'd work hard, try and gain some free time. And I, and I started thinking what would be beneficial to the company and started working, putting together information, putting together analysis and reports and submitting that to leadership, submitting that to my manager to be able to review. And they were oftentimes impressed and I would get a promotion out of it. I didn't wait for them to handpick me. I was a go-getter. I went above and beyond. All right. So it, it, it is not about race. It's about 
what do you do if you, but you know, maybe there is a racial aspect to that. Maybe there is, you know, but the racial aspect would be not that your race is holding you back, but rather how the Democrats talk to you because of your race. Maybe it's because of how the Democrats treat you in the education system because of your race. So maybe there is uh, some argument here for systemic racism. You know, however, the problem is the left's narrative on it is completely false because the left is the one engaging in the racism, telling kids from the very early get-go that they are a victim, that they'll never succeed in life, that there is no point to them ever trying to accomplish anything, that their best hope is to keep voting Democrats so that they could get a handout from the government, unable to accomplish anything themselves. If there is any truth to systemic racism, any truth to critical race theory whatsoever, that would be it. Unfortunately, they wouldn't be able to get to that truth because it's the Democrats, the ones who are engaged in targeting and sabotaging people based off of skin color, who are the ones coming up with the curriculum, coming up with the idea and pushing it and, and they're pushing it to try and blame their ideological opponents for that which the Democrats themselves are doing, which is part of the Leninist and Marxist. I mean, if you were to go back and take a look uh, back in the, you know, oh, how many years ago uh, was it? It was decades ago, uh, back around the 1960s, 1950s, in which the Communist Party issued their directive on how you go off and handle people who have been, who are politically and ideologically inconvenient to you, who are effective at pushing back on the, on the narratives that you are trying to push and what to do, especially with those who defect from the Communist Party and start speaking out against it. And the left follows that playbook to a T. And yes, that will also be a part of my conversation, part of my podcast episode, in which I go into details of cultural subversion and how it's been mixed with, well, mixed with, but, you know, developed by Marxists and Leninists in a particular area, but how it combines, you know, the Marxist, Leninist, you know, the rules for radicals and how they combined all of that. Because the problem here is when you take a look at communists, socialists, and how they work towards cultural subversion, it's not the ideological component that is the, the effectiveness. That, that, that is not how they gain their power. It is the Leninist portion of that ideology in which they are able to push through and accomplish cultural subversion. But anyways, that is a much more, a longer conversation. And you know, as I try to keep the episodes, and I always fail to keep it within an hour, but this, that episode is probably going to go along the lines of, I would say we could expect maybe about closer to two hours in the conversation, but I will try my best to keep it down to an hour or around an hour, right? Because I'm trying to avoid it becoming a full documentary uh, deal. Now, the video version will take a lot longer and will be presented much uh, in the native to video rather than audio. So you know, there will be probably a lot more to that. But in any event, you know, and then they follow up with the 1619 Project. And this is driving the left crazy that Republicans are starting to wake up and they are starting to push back against this nonsense, against critical race theory and 1619 Project. 
The article goes on to say that the 1619 Project relies upon the concept of critical race theory to further divide students based on the color of their skin. The 1619 Project, inaugurated with a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, has attempted to cast the Atlantic slave trade as the dominant factor in the founding of the United States. Yeah, that's completely debunked, but, you know, the, the 1619 Project has been completely debunked, but they keep pushing this because they're trying to rewrite this. But they pushed the Atlantic slave trade as the dominant factor in the founding of the United States rather than ideas such as individual liberty and natural rights. Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, responded to the GOP's criticism of the project during an interview with MSNBC on May 3rd, saying the 1619 curriculum being allowed in school is a matter of free speech. No, it is not a matter of free speech. Look, I get it. The schools are a public institution. Yes. Do you have a right to free speech? Yes. But does pushing a curriculum in the school in which you have a forced captive audience, because free speech, not only is that you have the ability to freely speak your mind, it's also that the person on the other end has the ability to freely ignore you and walk away. Once you get to the point where you have a forced captive audience, you know, who are forced to attend and listen to your garbage without any choice or say in the matter, without the freedom to get up and walk away. And then you put on top of that forced things that uh, happen in a curriculum, such as testing, in which they must answer a question based off of what you claim, or they get a bad grade. Now you're not only violating free speech, you are invoking indoctrination, which is why schools need to stay clear of political issues, because it's not a matter of free speech. It's not a matter of constitutionality, because it re free speech not only requires that you have the ability to freely talk, but other people have the ability to ignore and walk away. When you are forcing them to be in that room with no choice to leave, and then you are forcing upon them that their grades, their academic career is dependent upon submitting and regurgitating what you are telling them. That is not free speech. And this is why we need to work hard at safeguarding the schools from political indoctrination, because they have forced compulsory powers. Do this or you get a bad grade, which is why we need to focus on facts, not garbage opinions, not theories, not the rewritten version of history, not the bastardization of science and biology. <sighs> Anyways, and now continues, this isn't a project about trying to teach children that our country is evil, but it is a project trying to teach children the truth about what our country was based upon. And it's only in really confronting that truth, slavery was the foundation of the United States, we, after the slavery, experienced a hundred years of legalized discrimination against black Americans. Now, see here where they mix up a blatant lie with a half-truth. But you notice how the half-truth, the complete omission of what actually happened in that discrimination, who is behind it, who is the leadership invoking all of that discrimination. Oh, it's all the people that, the, that these hacks of 1619 Project and critical race theory are supporting. You know, it, it, it is them bastardizing history, rewriting it to a fictional narrative. 
and then using that half-truth about the discrimination that was solely conducted by the Democrats in order to force indoctrination to support the Democrats. Now, it's driving the left nuts that some Republicans are finally waking up and speaking out against critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and are blocking its teachings and blocking them from being implemented into the school system. Now, this is where I get into the problem with the Republican Party. You know, we talk a lot about the problems and the issues of the rhinos. You know, the ones who are constantly stabbing us in the back, selling us out in order to get, you know, uh, their butt kissed by the media as being one of the few Republicans who stand up, the few honest Republicans, you know, get the favorable coverage that strokes their ego. You know, and yes, we do need to primary challenge and replace all of the rhinos in the party. But then here's where we get to the other politicians. They're not rhinos, right? And, not, and I'll, I'll make a distinction. They're not rhinos. And every so often, they do stand up and do the things that we want. But the problem is they're so disconnected from what's actually going on on the ground that they only step up and take action once it hits critical mass. They ignore, with their heads in the sand, all the years of warning. You know, so for instance, how many years were we warning them, hey, this online censorship thing, it's getting out of control. Hey, you, you know, you guys need to really step up and take a look at editing, revising, or fixing Section 230. And they ignored us. They thought, no, that's not a problem. They didn't understand the issue because they themselves were not the ones being targeted. Of course not. You never make as your first target those who have the power and authority to stop you. You make as your first target all the underlings that they don't really pay attention to or don't have access to the politicians and then only start targeting the politicians once you hit enough power and control and they no longer have the ability to push back or to stop you. And that's where I get into the problem with so many other uh, Republican leaders in elected office is that they are reactionary. They're not actively paying attention to what the Democrats do are doing. And that's where we find ourselves in the situation where now that the Democrats have taken control, taken control of D.C. and with lots of questionable legitimacy, but now that they have taken control of D.C. and have finally decided to go for broke, the complete shock to most of those in elected office, to just who and what the Democrats really are, just how radicalized and far gone they are, is finally waking them up. It's finally, you know, waking them out of their comatose state and finally, and it's creating a shock that now they're stepping up and they're doing something about it. Now they're stepping up and taking action and they want to get credit in the 2022 election cycle and their reelection efforts among the base for now finally waking up, understanding what's going on and taking action. But my question to them would be, where the hell have you been all this time? Where the hell were you when we were screaming at the top of our lungs about what was going on, when we were warning you, sending you letters after letters, messaging you all over social media, mailing to you, calling up your offices, telling you, this is a problem. This is what they're doing. If you don't do something about this, things are going to go to hell pretty quickly. Things are going to get worse very quickly. And they ignored us. They may have touched on it, you know, a little here and there, but they didn't do anything. They didn't really consider it a problem. They didn't consider it something that needed their immediate attention 
and action. So they ignored it. And look where we're at. So when we get down to it, when you go into the 2022 primaries, and when you're taking a look right now at the field for the primaries, maybe you should be thinking about whether or not these people, as much as we like them now, as much as they're saying the right things now, and even though they haven't stabbed us in the back, maybe you should be thinking, do they need to be replaced? Now, this is a serious question. Do they need to be replaced with someone who is more attentive, more alert, someone who is paying attention to the actions and the agenda of the left and cutting it off at the beginning, keeping it from taking root and moving forward? Or does somebody who ignored all the warnings, ignored all of the red flags, ignored everybody saying, hey, pay attention. They're, look, look what they're doing. This is going to be harmful and ignoring it. You know, so we, we need to take a look at that. We need more proactive politicians, not those who are only reacting once the dumpster fire is raging. We need to get, we need to get politicians in that will stop the dumpster fire before it happens, not after it's raging. Okay. So that's it uh, for this episode. I'd like to thank you so much for listening in. I know it went long. Sorry about that. All right. So um, you know the drill. If this is your first time listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. It just means follow. It doesn't cost anything. There are some people who actually believe hitting subscribe means a financial commitment. No, it just means follow. All right. Leave me ratings and reviews. And don't forget to share this on any social media site that still allows this podcast to be posted. All right. Thank you so much. And I will be back again soon.